afternoon. I welcome you. I'm the director of the German Historical Institute London. My name is Christina von Hodenberg. Um, and today we welcome Professor Peter Burschel from um, Wolfenbüttel. Um, I have to say before we start and before I introduce him that we will record his lecture tonight and we will also make this lecture and this recording but just the audio of it available on our website as a podcast later on. Um, we will not record the discussion and I just wanted you to know um, in the audience that we will record the lecture so um, feel free to um, turn off your video or have your video on, um, whatever works better for you. But um, do make sure, please, that your microphones are muted. Um, we will have the lecture and then we will have time for discussion. Um, and we will um, ask you to um, either type in the chat if you have a question, either the question itself, I could read it out if you want to, or you could just type in your name into the chat and then I would ask you to unmute yourself and to ask your question yourself. But that is for the discussion. Okay, so um, Peter Borschel's lecture today was the last event last March, which was planned at the GHI before um, the spring term ended or the winter term as the first event that we had to cancel because of the COVID pandemic. I think it was mid-March last year. And I'm very glad that Peter has agreed to give his lecture for us now and to give it in this virtual format, which enables you to listen to it even um, without traveling to London if you're not from London. So Peter Borschel is the director of the Herzog August Library, the Herzog August Bibliothek in Wolfenbüttel, and at the same time is a professor at the University of Göttingen. The Herzog August Bibliothek in Wolfenbüttel is a particular library. It is a real treasure trove because it is one of the largest or maybe even the largest European library of early modern and medieval manuscripts. It was already famous in the 17th century for its particular holdings of literature. And it has developed not only into a large library, but also into a research hub where early modernists from all over the world come to research their holdings, but also to discuss their findings and to communicate with each other. And Peter has been the director of this library and a professor in Göttingen since 2016. And before that, he um, held the professorship for early modern history at the Humboldt University in Berlin. And then again, before that, he was professor for early modern history in at the University of Rostock in Northern Germany. He read history in Göttingen as a, an undergraduate and then did his PhD also in Göttingen on the social history of early modern soldiers and military and then became an assistant professor in Freiburg at Freiburg University where he did his habilitation on um, death and martyrdom in the early modern German states and, and Europe. And he has also published on a variety of other topics, normally in the area of the cultural and social history of early modern 
Europe often um, having to do with confessional cultures or with historical anthropology. And his other specialties are saints and, well, perceptions of early modern saints in a, the early modern times, Eden's purity as a concept, but also the history of the body in uh, early modern Europe. And uh, he has also edited um, reports by papal nuncia um, at the emperor's court um, earlier in his career. And his most well-known books have all been published in German, but uh, they are very well written and they are a pleasure to read. There's a book from 2014 on the concept of purity in early modern times. Then there's a book on martyrium and death uh, that's from 2004. And the other one, the social history of the early modern military is from 1994. And there are many, many smaller publications and, um, and uh, articles that I don't even mention here. And I should also say that Peter is on the editorial board of several important journals, such as Seculum and his Historische Anthropologie and so on. So I'm very, very pleased that he's um, with us today and that he tells us about a new project of his, with, which has to do with the skin color in early modern time. And I think with that, I will hand over to you, Peter. And I'm very, very intrigued on in learning more about the dance of the Tapuya. Yes, thank you so much, uh, Christina. Um, it's, and, and thank you, uh, Pascal Siegrist, for your help. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, it was a pleasure for me, and it's, it's, it's wonderful to, to be here and to be with you. And um, yes, I will start, but I, I would like to mention one aspect. Christina mentioned it. Um, the Herzog August Library um, is a library for, especially for young fellows. And we, uh, Christina mentioned it, we have a very um, big fellowship program. And uh, to, to say it very, to strengthen it, I would be very happy if you would like to be a fellow, please um, send me an email. Um, our research programs, our research conditions are really wonderful. You are very much welcome to Wolfenbüttel and to the, our library. But now it's better to, to start with my talk, the dance of the Tapuya. My first point, uh, people of the earth. In 1644, the artist Albert Eckhout returned home to Europe after spending several years in the Dutch colony of Northern Brazil, known at the time as New Holland. Upon his return, he painted eight life-size portraits in oil, depicting four male-female couples. Each couple represented one of the different ethnic groups that made up the colony's inhabitants. He also created a ninth painting, which in contrast to the portraits is in a horizontal format. It shows, perhaps the next, um, Pascal, it shows eight indigenous men dancing what is probably a war dance, while they were observed by two women who appear 
to be whispering to each other. The group of paintings is completely by 12 still lives of Brazilian fruit and vegetables. Eckhout was court painter to the governor of New Holland, Johann Mauritz van Nassau-Siegen, and had spent several years in Brazil painting, researching, and reporting on the colony. He was part of a group which included fellow artists like Franz Post, along with scholars such as the cartographer Georg Markgraf, the doctor Wilhelm Piso, and the historian Caspar van Berle. As such, Eckhout's pictures contributed to the collection and distribution of colonial knowledge, although they were probably also intended as a representative depiction of Brazilian society. They were almost certainly created at the behest of Johann Mauritz and perhaps intended for the governor's palace. However, when Mauritz was recalled to Europe by the Dutch West India Company in 1644, it seems that Eckhout had to accompany him. So that the pictures were not actually painted in Brazil, although Eckhout had already completed plenty of preliminary studies. In 1654, Johann Mauritz presented the pictures to the Danish King Frederick III as a gift. Frederick subsequently displayed them in his cabinet of curiosities, we would say in German Wunderkammer, at his palace in Copenhagen. Today, the pictures are owned by the Danish National Museum, where they form part of a permanent display in the ethnology collection titled People of the Earth. My second point, Arkans sort. Researchers, especially art historians, have long been aware of the, the significance of these pictures. There were artists before Eckhout who had traveled to the new world to portray the people they met there in drawings or watercolors. For example, perhaps the next picture, for example, John White and the next, who at the end of the 16th century traveled to what is today North Carolina. Eckhout's portraits of couples are also in the tradition of the small prints of indigenous groups that we find in travel narratives and in the so-called Trachtenbüchern, books that depict the fashions and apparel of unfamiliar cultures. But before Eckhout, no one appears to have thought of creating large-scale portraits of non-European individuals in their own environments. Art historian Victoria Schmidt-Linsenhoff, German art historian, she died several years ago, 
has described his portraits of couples as depictions of ethnographical types and stereotypical body images. The women and men who appear in the pictures have been classified and interpreted in terms of the artist's gaze and its underlying assumptions. According to Schmidt-Linsendorf, this gallery of types, a way of depicting foreign people that was common among natural historians and ethnologists of the time, had the effect of creating a Brazilian collective, collective body. Yet at the same time, it also reveals the hybrid, multiply fractured character of this supposedly singular entity. Schmidt-Linsenhoff's interpretation differs starkly from that of earlier researchers who saw Eckhart's portraits as faithful records or realistic portraits. She argues that the pictures show a more or less linear progression from indigenous wildness, quotation marks, to European civilization, quotation marks, as a topographical, chromatical, and last but not least, cultural coexistence. In German, I would say, I wouldn't say coexistence, but nebeneinander, but I don't know how to, uh, to translate this word in a better way. In this first example, an indigenous couple now identified as belonging to the Tapuya Indians is shown more or less naked in a wilderness whose dangers are symbolized by the tarantula and boa that appear in the picture of the man. The man portrayed here is wearing decoration on his head, face, and penis, and bears several weapons, namely a club, a catapult, and several spears. Other Tapuya men can be seen in the middle distance dancing in a clearing, similarly to those depicted in Eckhart's Nines horizontal painting. There is no sign of a village anywhere. The Tapuya are hunter-gatherers. The woman is also naked except for a bunch of leaves covering her pubic area. Behind her is a Cassia grandis tree. A dog is, the dog is drinking water from a pool between her feet. The artist appears to deliberately draw attention to its bared white teeth. The woman is holding a dismembered hand in her own right hand in a basket she is carrying on her back, supported by a strap around her forehead. We can make out a dismembered foot next to a calabash gourd. In the background, a group of Tapuya is moving down the valley. It's obvious that this woman is a cannibal. The next couple 
representing the Tupi Namba ethnic group is depicted very differently. The man's mustache and goatee have a European appearance. He is wearing a short white cotton or perhaps linen skirt. At the belt, he wears a knife with a metal blade. He holds a bow and several arrows in his hands. In the right foreground is a cassava tuber. Juan Maurit had decreed that the cassava plant should be cultivated to provide a basic food for the colony. In the background, more members of the Tupinambar are washing their white garments in a river, while others are bathing. The Tupinamba woman is also wearing a short white skirt. Her dark hair is bound in two braids that reach to her hips. With her right arm, she carries a small naked child at her breast and a calabash gourd dangles from her wrist. She is holding up her left arm to support a woven rectangular basket balanced on her head. The basket holds more gourds along with various other objects. The banana tree on the right of the picture represents a settled economy and way of life, while the fruit plantation on the palm trees, together with what is probably the master's house and the Tupinamba people working in the background, are intended to show that this ethnic group forms an integral part of the colonial plantation economy. The couple with which Eckhout has chosen to show as being especially civilized, quotation marks, from the European point of view are mestizos, a word used generally to describe those of mixed indigenous American and European descent. In New Holland, it described Luso-Brazilians, that is, people who were descended from the early Portuguese colonizers and the indigenous women of the country of female African slaves. The man here, who, as in the previous picture, has a mustache and goatee beard, is wearing a long-sleeved white shirt with a military-looking cape, which appears to be made of the skin of a wild animal. His weapons are a musket and a dagger, representing the newest developments in European weaponry. It comes almost as a surprise that his shirt is only knee length and that he is not wearing any shoes. In the background, we see the coast, the sea and a number of ships. On the right, we see sugarcane, the colony's main export. The woman, is wearing a floor-length white gown, a motif commonly used in 17th century paintings when depicting allegorical figures. Jewelry adorns her neck, ears, and right wrist. At least some of this jewelry appears to be of European origin. In her right hand, she is holding 
up a basket of flowers, while with her left, she lifts her gown to expose her naked feet. The background shows a wide, cultivated landscape with a few houses dotted around it. The skin of the mestizo couple is clearly lighter than that of the quotation marks Indians in the previous portraits. The last two portraits are devoted to the black population of the colony, the slaves. The African date palm, the elephant tooth, and significantly the ships on the horizon behind the woman are all intended to show where these people have come from. The man is wearing a blue and white checked loincloth with, which holds spears, harpoons, and an intricately designed sword. The sword has been identified as a ceremonial sword belonging to the West African Akan tribe. In his right hand, he carries another spear confidently aloft. Behind him is the sea. The woman is also wearing a blue and white checked skirt bound with a red sash with a Dutch clay pipe tucked into it. Her upper body and legs are unclothed. The splendid hat that she is wearing on her head is made of peacock feathers, while the jewelry she is wearing at her neck, ears, and wrists includes two ropes of pearls and indicates that her status is much higher than that of a slave. In her right hand, she carries a richly decorated basket that is full to bursting with fruit, while her left hand rests on the head of a little naked boy who is depicted with a parrot and some cups of corn. The boy's skin is noticeably lighter than the woman's. In the middle distance, we can see fishermen mending their nets. One of them has climbed up a ladder, perhaps to get a better view on the, of the ships that can just be made out on the horizon. My third point, the white gaze. It was about 10 years ago that I first began to think about the history of purity. Very soon I noticed how closely this is linked to the history of skin color. Historically, perceptions and interpretations of skin color have been accompanied by ideas about purity from the very beginning. Although the European late medieval and early modern European expansion and the resulting exponential rise in the slave trade mark a pivotal moment in this connection. My research into the history of skin color soon led me to Albert Eckhorn's portraits. This is not surprising. When looking at the portraits, the difference in skin color between the various couples and individuals leaps to the eye. We find ourselves trying to understand what role skin color played in the 17th century as a marker of cultural 
difference. This is the questions I will be considering in this talk. The pictures make reference to a process through which European perceptions of skin color increasingly began to determine European perceptions of the non-European other. One can even say that it was only in the course of this process that skin color became the supra-individual marker of difference by which Europeans structured, classified, and ultimately hierarchized intercultural and transcultural encounters. It was through this process that white skin became the non-negotiable cultural norm, something that cultural speaks is that culturally speaking could seemingly no longer be subverted or deconstructed. In German, I would say, kulturell nicht mehr zu hintergehen. But if this is the case, why is the European population of the colony entirely absent in Eckhout's pictures, despite the fact that these seem to have a clear documentary purpose? If we assume that the series of portraits was, at least originally, intended to act as a representative depiction of the colony, I think the answer to this question is fairly clear. The colonizers may be missing from the pictures, but their gaze is everywhere. The pictures enforce an order of collective visibility on the colonized population. But the colonizers remain unbound by this order, even though they themselves have created it. In this context, Schmidt-Linsenhoff, the art historian, speaks of the white gaze as the eye of God, omniscient, ubiquitous, but itself remaining beyond representation. My fourth point, complexio. But how exactly did skin color become a collective medium of cultural appraisal? In the Middle Ages, skin color was still understood as the color of someone's body. This color was dependent on a person's complexio, that is, the individual balance of that person's physical humors, the four elements, cold, moist, hot, and dry, which were imagined as fluids present in each person's body. The precise composition of these humors interacted was dependent on a variety of factors. For example, what food a person ate, what kind of climate they lived in, their age, and their sex. The ideal or well-tempered complexion relied on a balance between the four humors, in particular a balance between the extremes of great heat and dryness and their opposites, great cold and moisture. Extreme heat and dryness corresponded to blackness, while extreme cold and moisture were white. An example can help us to understand this. After the Canary Islands were discovered by Europeans 
in the first half of the 14th century, numerous medieval writers, including Boccaccio, thought that the island's inhabitants must be especially happy, or perhaps happy in the sense of healthy and lucky, because they supposedly enjoyed the perfect skin color. They were neither too black nor too white. But it is interesting to note that toward the end of the 15th century, after the Spanish conquered the islands and forced many of the Canarian inhabitants into slavery, they began to be defined as dark brown. As they became slaves, they became blacker in European eyes. It was, so to say, a process of blackening. In the course of the 16th century, the medieval idea of complexio fell out of fashion. Medically, physiologically, and philosophically. To cite cultural historian Valentin Gröbner, the complexion wandered, quote, wandered from the invisible inwardness of the humors to the exterior of the body, where it became something fundamentally visible, something located on the skin, unquote. In the late 16th and early 17th century, complexio could mean the physical makeup of a person, but it could also refer to his or, to his or her skin color. From this period on, skin color was deemed to be something that the person was born with, something absolutely natural and unchangeable. And that not only from a scientific perspective, to cite just one example of the paradigm shift in medieval times, it was believed that Ethiopians who moved north were likely to change their skin color after just a few generations. In 1566, this belief was still circulating. For example, in Jean Baudin's influential text, Methodus ad facilem historiarum cognitionem. By the middle of the 17th century, less than a hundred years later, it would have been hard to find anyone who believed such a theory. My fifth point, the day of Guanahani. From the late 15th and early 16th century, Europeans in the Americas began to establish a certain discourse in which they described themselves and the world around them chromatically. But how did this look in practice? It's useful here to compare two typical and well-known texts that describe the encounter between Christopher Columbus and the inhabitants of the island of Guanahani on 12th of October, 1492. The first text 
is a diary entry made by Columbus himself. The second is a rewritten version of that same diary, diary entry published some 40 years later in the Historia de las Indias by Bartolomé de las Casas. In Columbus' own version, he hardly mentions the color of the islanders' skin at all, except to compare it with that of the inhabitants of the Canary Islands, which was the expedition's last stopping off point before embarking on the Atlantic crossing. Columbus merely wrote, quote, the Guanahanis are much the same color as the Canarians, that is midway between black and white, unquote. But 40 years later, Las Casas significantly amends the disease description to include references to the white skin of the Spaniards, which according to him, was the main focus of the islanders' interest and the lens through which they viewed their visitors. Quote, the Indians were astonished when they saw the Christians. They were afraid of their birds and their white skin. They timidly approached the birdmen especially the admiral, the admiral is Columbus, taking him to be the commander because of his dignified mien and his scarlet red clothing. They touched the beards of the Spaniards, astounded by them as they themselves had no beards, and carefully observed the white skin of their hands and faces." Unquote. It is tempting to describe this kind of chromatic appro appropriation almost as innocent, but it records an increasing cultural semanticization of skin color in the early modern period, which was by no means innocent. It was based on an increasing stigmatization of people with black or brown otherwise known as mixed or impure skin. This stigmatization was itself often linked to certain mostly biblical lineage narratives. Noah's youngest son, Ham, whose son Canaan was cursed by Noah and condemned to live in eternal vassalage, had been retrospectively Africanized since the late Middle Ages as a way of justifying slavery. In the words of the historian, the American historian Benjamin Brody, quote, by the 19th century, the connection of Ham with Africa had been so deeply embedded in European consciousness that it was seen as the correct reading even when it was clearly a later edition." Unquote. This stigmatization also had the effect of denying people with black skin the ability to reproduce culture, as racism expert David Nierenberg 
has put it. Finally, in the course of the 18th century, this chromatic discrimination supported by earlier racial theories made its way across the globe as the inhabitants of North America became red and East Asians became yellow. My sixth point, Amerigo discovers America. If we now return to the pictures in which Albert Eckhout depicts Dutch Brazil's ethnic structure in such detail, it initially seems obvious that skin color is a, or perhaps even the marker of cultural difference. Eckhout's work here doubtless accords with the developments which I have described above. He depicts conditions in the colony on the basis of color, attempting to show colonial hierarchies as natural, while at the same time, his color-based gallery of types itself helps to end the interpretation of the world. We should note that also the, the cultural semanticization of skin color intensifies and accelerates from the end of the 16th century previous traditions of Europeanizing non-European people. And Europeanizing is also what we in German call antikisierung. I don't know the English word. Perhaps there is no English word for antikisierung. Europeanizing non-European people through their physiognomy and their color did not immediately disappear. As late as 1589, for example, the colored version of Jan van der Straat's famous copper plate Amerigo discovers America shows no color difference between Europe and the New World. Europe is represented through a closed white male figure, America by a naked white female figure. Similarly, in Cesare Ripa's Econologia from 1603, Africa is shown allegorically as a white female figure with a cornucopia, a lion, an elephant trunk, and other so-called African attributes. But Africa is not represented as black until later translation on the right side from the 17th century. There is no question that the skin color of the men and women depicted by Eckhout lends greater visibility to the ethnic and cultural structures of colonial society. But can we just leave it at that? Is this the only interpretation these portraits have to offer? I think not. In my view, Eckhout's pictures have a lot more to say about color. First, the difference between the more civilized and less civilized couples is not about black and white. 
the more significant marker of difference lies in the contrast between two ethnic groups, the Tapuya and the Tupinamba. The Tapuya are depicted as cannibals, while the Tupinamba are shown as part of the colony's plantation economy. However, in terms of skin color, these two groups do not differ and are not differentiated at all. In other, in other words, it's not nature, not skin color that marks the absolute difference between these two ethnic groups. Instead, it is a cultural distance of each group to the Europeans. Secondly, it is interesting that Eckhout depicts the African man as a belligerent warrior with a royal sword, while the African woman is a proud, solemn mother wearing expensive jewelry. His depiction of the Africans subverts the association that we might anticipate between black skin, slave labor, and sensuality that was already found in many colonial narratives in the mid 17th century. Eckhart also avoids explicitly identifying the Africans as slaves, except perhaps through the indirect reference of the ships that appear on the horizon. My seventh point and my last point, slavery without slaves, or better, slavery without slaves. How can we explain this? It is possible that Eckhout is not actually attempting to provide an accurate record of the colony. Is it possible? A colony that might be described as the petri dish in which the Dutch slave trade grew. To repeat, is it possible that Eckhout is not actually attempting to provide an accurate record of the colony, a colony that might be described as the petri dish in which the Dutch slave trade grew? Is he instead perhaps attempting to depict a realistic vision of how a colony without slaves might look? Might we even see here the beginnings of a colonial anti-discourse? Is it possible that Johann Mauritz might have instructed his court painter Eckhart to find a way to depict slaves without slavery by creating a portrait of a couple where any trace of the social and economic practice of unpaid labor is entirely expunged? Did he fear that a more accurate depiction would have risked too much controversy in the moral and ethical climate of the time? We cannot exclude any of these possibilities, and they are possibilities. Subversive moments do exist in the colonial imagery of the 17th century. 
But I believe there is another more likely interpretation. The pictures confront the viewer with a historical moment when the European encoding of skin color was undergoing a crucial transformation. Although we cannot say exactly what Eckhart had in mind, the pictures themselves tell us that at this moment in time, things could still have turned out differently. The cultural appropriation of the non-European other was not yet fully formed or fixed. There was still a certain latitude, a certain freedom in how things were perceived and interpreted, which gradually shut down in the course of the 17th century. If we look at a later picture with a similar theme, Dirk Falkenburg's portrait of a group of dancing, drinking, smoking slaves in Suriname, we can clearly see that by the time this picture was painted, less than a hundred years later, it had become virtually impossible to see things differently. In European eyes, the connection between skin color, sexuality, and slavery had now become an unquestionable truth. Thank you very much.